Beloved, I invite you to open a Bible if you have one before you, first to a pair of readings and then on to the confessional reading for this afternoon's sermon. First, I invite you to read from the book of Acts, chapter 1. We'll read the first 11 verses, and then we'll turn to the book addressed to the Hebrews, chapter 8. Read the first uh, 13 verses there. We turn then first to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 11, where we see an account of Christ's ascension into heaven. Beloved, hear the word of the Lord. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he threw the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Thus far, reading from the book of Acts, we turn then to the letter to the Hebrews. And there, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, we hear the word of the Lord. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain." But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, 
inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And that he says a new covenant, he has made the first covenant or the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thus far, reading from God's holy word. We turn now to read from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 18. And there in Lord's Day 18 of the Heidelberg Catechism, we confess what we believe with regard to that article of the Apostles' Creed, that he, that is Christ, ascended into heaven. Beloved, here what we believe is a faithful summary of God's word. What do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven? That Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world, as he has promised us? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other? If his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is. Not at all, for his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. So it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on. And nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends us his Spirit as a counterpledge by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. This beloved, we confess. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure most of us have heard the saying, out of sight, out of mind. It's kind of part of human nature, you might say, that we tend to stop thinking about 
people or things that are no longer visible or immediately present in our lives. If you've ever moved across the world or across the country or even just across the province to a new town, you've likely experienced something like this firsthand. You grow up with certain people and you become friends with them, but then you move. And at first, you might keep up regular contact, sharing with them how your life is going in your new home. But often, slowly, surely, the communication tends to die down. Eventually, your communication with them often just boils down to occasionally seeing them in your Facebook feed, vice versa. It's hard to to maintain a relationship with someone that we rarely or never see in person. If you've ever had a a long-distance dating relationship, you can probably attest to this. We tend to focus on what's right in front of us, particularly in our present age, because we're bombarded so often with information and media throughout the day. And we tend to spend very little time, if any, thinking about things that are outside of our busy schedules and our immediate plans. Often we're so busy that we don't even have time to really think about the things that are right in front of us. And this can be a problem, particularly when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't see him. And so in the midst of our busy lives, it can be easy to forget that he is there. That he is supporting us helping us, looking after us at every moment. Even when we forget about him, we spend very little time on our end of our relationship with him. He is faithful and true. Because even though we can't see Christ face to face at this moment, even though he is absent from us with regard to his human flesh, He has not abandoned us or left us alone. He ascended into heaven, but only to better help all of us who place our hope and trust in him. Beloved, I proclaim what God's word tells us about the ascension of Jesus Christ, using the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide. And this theme, our Lord has ascended to better support us. And we'll look at first the duration of his ascension, second the nature of his ascension, and third the benefits of his ascension. So question 46 of the Catechism asks, what do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven? And at first we respond that Christ before the eyes of his disciples was taken up from the earth into heaven and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living, and the dead. And evidence for the first part of this answer can be readily found in the book of Acts, which we just read, where Luke, the good doctor, records that when Jesus had talked to his disciples, they, the disciples, were were looking on and they saw Jesus lifted up and eventually a cloud hid him from their sight. 
See, along with the events like Christ's suffering, Christ's death and his resurrection, Christ's ascension was something which was seen by eyewitnesses. It is something which is clearly portrayed to us as a, a historic fact. The ascension is not an allegory or a metaphor for some spiritual change that has to occur in ourselves. It is, in the first place, something which literally occurred. Our Savior was lifted up from the earth, defying what we might call the natural laws of gravity. Now, he could have simply disappeared from their sight. But by first rising up in front of them, he clearly indicates to his disciples that he's not merely going away for a brief time, not like with his other brief post-resurrection appearances where he appeared before them and then seems to have just disappeared. No, by departing from their midst, by going up, he clearly indicates that he is going to dwell in the spiritual realm of heaven. Because heaven is always described in Scripture as something which is above us. The ascension from earth points to Jesus Christ's entrance into that realm where God the Father dwells in his full majesty and glory. The author of Hebrews points out, chapter 8, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This confirmation of this entrance into heaven. We're also told of the appearance of two heavenly figures. For we read that while the disciples were, were standing there, looking up, gazing into heaven, that all of a sudden two men appear before them who are wearing white apparel or white clothing. And this white apparel is basically a, a, a dead giveaway, you might say, that these are in fact angels. They are spiritual beings which ordinarily would dwell in the very presence of God the Father. And their appearance here is a, another clear reminder of where Christ is, that he's in the heavenly courts, that he's in a place where he himself is receiving the praise of the angels and other heavenly beings. And there he will remain leading his church as they carry out their task of announcing Christ's redemptive work to the nations. Until this work is complete and all the elect are gathered in and Jesus Christ comes again. Jesus instructed his disciples saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So we can read in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And in the meantime, our Lord and Savior has ascended to a place of power and influence. We might say that he has gone to his heavenly headquarters where he is better able to watch over all of us. Well, on earth, his influence, you might say, was only felt most keenly in one place at a time, wherever his human body was. But now that he is in heaven, he is able to watch over all his followers, the church, and all the places where it is being gathered from. 
He can speak to each one of us through the Holy Spirit wherever we are living and worshiping. He has ascended so that the gospel can go out and as it goes out, he may watch over its progress. He ascended so that he could be there for all of us at every moment of every day. See, when we feel like no one is on our side, we can remember that Jesus is watching out for us. He is directing all things for our benefit. Now, that's not necessarily for our, for our earthly, material kind of benefit. It's not that the ascension is guaranteeing that life will then be easy for believers. We're warned numerous times that we will have to endure to the end. That as we await the time of Christ's return, it will be difficult. In Matthew, Jesus warned the disciples, they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But we may be confident that Christ is watching out for our eternal good. He is directing things so that we will experience an eternity of joyful celebration. One which will wipe away all the pain and misery which we may have to endure in this life. For our Lord has ascended in order to ensure that a brighter future awaits us. Even if this life at times should be dismal or harsh. This brings us to the second point about the nature of this ascension. It might be asked why the catechism devotes four question and answers to the matter of Christ's ascension. Numerous other statements from the Apostles' Creed, which would seem just as significant, are addressed with a a single set of question and answer. So what's so important about Christ's ascension that the catechism focuses in on it in such depth? Well, the reason for this goes back to the the time of the Reformation. and Even more specifically, you might say, to, to the situation in the city of Heidelberg where the Heidelberg Catechism comes from. See, there had just been an intense debate in this city with regard to the differences between the Lutheran understanding the Christian faith and the more reformed understanding of the Christian faith. See, the Lutherans had a doctrine as a doctrine of ubiquity. During the, the Reformation, Martin Luther and some of his strict followers taught that Christ was ubiquitous or omnipresent or everywhere at once in both his, his humanity and his divinity. Now the catechism, in accordance with the, the more reformed understanding, states that Christ is only ubiquitous or omnipresent or everywhere at once with regard to his divinity, his, his divine nature. It says his human nature is only found in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And now it might be asked, 
why does it really matter whether or not his human nature is omnipresent or ubiquitous? Isn't this kind of a, a silly theological question, like theologians debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Well, the question has a lot of impact because it affects how we understand the Lord's Supper. And specifically, Christ's statements regarding the the bread, that this is my body, and the wine, this is my blood. See, Luther and his strict followers insisted that the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, was being physically consumed at the Lord's Supper. Now, they didn't agree with the Roman Catholic Church that this happened through the, the transformation of the bread into the physical body of Christ. Instead, they taught that this could happen because Christ's body after the ascension is really everywhere. And so when you're eating the bread, you can say that Christ's body is in and around and with that morsel that you eat. Now, the Reformed theologians, for their part, didn't really see a a scriptural basis for this idea of ubiquity. They didn't think it was essential to, to bring forth this doctrine in order to understand how Christ could say, this is my body and this is my blood. So that's why when we see in question 47, is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as he has promised us? And after all, Jesus did say, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We confess in response that Christ is true God, true man. Respect to his human nature, he's no longer present on earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. At times, we may feel overlooked or insignificant in the eyes of others. But we can remember that even though we say that Christ's human nature has gone to be in heaven with his Father, he is still through the omnipresent nature of his, or omnipresent reality of his divine nature still watching over us and with us. Christ is intimately aware, we might say, of everything that's going on in our lives. He knows what we're going through even if others around us don't get it. Not only because he lived a life on earth and knows what it's like to experience things like growing up with parents who don't seem to understand us. Experiencing the the messiness of human relationships where people you were once close to can can turn on you or betray you. Facing challenges in one's daily calling or facing the prospect of one's imminent death. Because as our God, he is able to walk with us every day as well. He knows the, the emotions and the very thoughts which plague us just as he knew about what others around him were thinking when he walked on earth. So we might say, Jesus Christ gets it. He truly does know us better than we know ourselves. The question and answer 48 kind of goes back to that heart of the the Reformed Lutheran discussion on ubiquity. There we ask, but are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other? If his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is. 
This is because, or this question is asked because the Lutherans argued this very thing. If you say that Christ's divinity is everywhere, but his humanity is only at the right hand of the Father, it would seem like you're, you're driving a wedge or a block between his divinity and his humanity. But the Reformed answered, as we see in answer 48, not at all, for his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. Must, so it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond his human nature, which he has taken on. Nevertheless, is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. The natures aren't separated because his humanity and his divinity do overlap. It's just that his divine nature is more widespread than his human nature. If I might give a somewhat poor analogy, you might think of having a, a piece of property with a house on it. Now, you wouldn't say that the, the house and the property were completely separate entities. The house is on the property and clearly connected with it, despite the fact that the property is more widespread than simply the part that is the house. Now, more importantly, we might say there, there's no real scriptural proof to support the idea that Christ's human nature has become totally unlike our human nature and has become omnipresent. The Apostle John tells us in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we, we hear of the divine taking on a, a limited nature which can be seen and dwell among men. But we don't read about the opposite happening. We aren't told that the man, Jesus Christ, is now all around us. Instead, we read things like, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are already priests who offer gifts according to the law. The implication of this is that in some very real capacity, Christ is absent from the earth. And clearly, it makes the most sense for this to mean that it's his human nature which isn't present. The angels who appeared at his dissension declared, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And say, if Christ is all around us now as both God and man, why say that he's gone up into heaven? Wouldn't he be just as present on earth as he is in heaven if both his humanity and divinity are everywhere? We might note how in Acts 1, chapter 8, sorry, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus emphasizes that the Holy Spirit will be there for his disciples. And the unspoken implication then is that Jesus himself, in some fashion, is not going to be as present with them. The, the language of Scripture, you might say, makes more sense when we hold to that idea that Christ's human nature really has gone into heaven. And that it is limited to being in that one location. Just like our own human natures, our own bodies are limited to being in a single location. There's something to be learned from this whole Lutheran reform debate. Perhaps it is that we ought to be cautious about trying to make Scripture fit into to neat little 
theological boxes. We have to be cautious about trying to take the words of Scripture and twisting them just so they conform with ideas which appeal to us or we like. Some things in Scripture are clearly meant to be a mystery to us and aren't discussed at length, or really at all. And some things don't need to be nailed down. There's a reason that Jesus talks at times about having a childlike faith. Sometimes we are simply to accept what we are told. Because when we, when we try to make it fit with, with our human understanding of reality, we can sometimes lose our way. And often we can see in the history of the church how, how huge divisions have formed on the basis of, of very minor theological specifics. And often the church is broken apart and rifts are created over things which Scripture doesn't clearly speak about. Now that's not to say that we can overlook every theological difference between ourselves and others. But we ought to remember at all times to keep things in perspective. What truly threatens the glory of God What ignores what God has clearly revealed in his word? And what nearly makes us a bit uncomfortable? Because it's not the traditional way we're used to thinking about things or have had them explained to us. This brings us to our third and final point about the benefits of his ascension. Beggar, pardon. Question 49 asks, rather practically, How does Christ's ascension benefit us? And in response, we note three benefits. First, we note that Christ has become our advocate in heaven before his Father. He's ascended to his position where he can influence the Father who rules over all things. And so, despite our our many sins and our, our constant demonstrations of weakness, we can be comforted with the knowledge that our Savior is in heaven to remind our Heavenly Father that He has carried out the perfect sacrifice to cover our sins. As we read in Hebrews 8, verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. What Christ offered was Himself. He gave himself as a sacrifice so that we could be confident that our perfect sacrifice sits at God's right hand to remind him constantly that all of our sins have been paid for. We can come before the Father in prayer at any time. Even when we aren't or haven't been at our our spiritual best, even when we haven't been particularly faithful or righteous. Because God doesn't hear us on the basis of what we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. Whatever we ask for in the name of Jesus Christ is something which God will address. That's not to say we'll always receive the the answers we want in response to our petitions. But we don't ever have to question whether or not God is hearing us or listening to us as we pray to him. 
And if our prayers don't come out perfectly formed or structured, if in our weakness and confusion we aren't even sure how to to properly express what we need or the desires of our hearts or the thoughts of our minds, we can take comfort in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is there speaking on our behalf, making up for our weaknesses. Now second, since the Son of Man is in heaven, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will take us, his members, up to himself. Do we ever find ourselves questioning where we will go when we die or what will happen to us? We are to take comfort in the fact that one human being has clearly gone to be with the Father in heaven. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. This promise to come again is also reflected in Acts 1.11 when the angels say, this Jesus who was taken up from heaven in, or taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. See, if we're striving in this life to, to listen to the marching orders which have come down to us, if we are doing what we can placing our faith and hope in Christ, we should not doubt that Christ has a place reserved for us in his heavenly courts. When we are finished doing what we can for the sake of his glory and honor, Christ will take us to himself. He didn't abandon us by going to heaven. He went to make things ready. He went to heaven to ensure that we have a glorious future that we may look forward to. Now third, having ascended into heaven, Christ also sends his spirit as a counterpledge by whose power we seek the things that are above where Christ is at the right hand of God, not the things that are on earth. We see Christ clearly promised this in Acts 1 when he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We can clearly see that this comes true in Acts 2 during the events of of Pentecost. And indeed, you might say that the entire book of Acts, if you're reading through it, clearly testifies to the power granted to the early church through the work of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, it is because of the power of the Holy Spirit that the gospel breaks out of the promised land and goes in to all the nations. That's why we can hear the the author, the letter to the Hebrews, write, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. See, primary among those promises is the promise that the Holy Spirit will dwell in the hearts of all who repent and look in faith to Jesus Christ. Christ may now be out of sight, but he shouldn't be out of our minds or thoughts. Ascension points to his constant concern and care for us. 
He ascended to support us. To obtain a place from which he could most properly guide his church and speak on their behalf with his Father. Our greatest struggles and trials. The moments where we feel low and beaten down. We may remember and reflect upon the ascension. Be reminded that not only are we being looked after now, but a day will come where we will be raised up to new heights. Amen.